0: scripture reading for this morning is from Lamentation chapter 3. I'm going to read from verses 22 to 26. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Thank you, Heather. Good morning, family. How are you today? Good. Good. It's good to see you. Uh, If you're not yet part of our family, if you are visiting with us, we just want you to know we're really happy to have you here as a guest. um, Maybe you're just on the island for a little while so you will forever remain a guest. That's okay, you're gonna uh, fly back to wherever it is you live after visiting family. We're really happy that you're here. But perhaps you're here as a guest and you're here for six months or a year or three years. We would really love to have you move from the friend zone into our family. Uh, We would love to share life with you as family uh, while you're here. And while you're here as a guest, please know that you you don't have to do anything to prove yourself to us. Uh, We were all accepted into the Father's family because of Jesus' work on our behalf, not anything that we did to prove that we're really great Christians. So you, you don't need to prove anything to us. Just be here and rest and be encouraged as we rehearse the gospel together And um, we look forward to getting to know you even better. Let's pray and we'll get right down to work in our sermon this morning. Father, for all those who are tired in their souls this morning, I pray that you would give them rest in Jesus. Jesus, for all those who feel a long way off, distant from you and separated, I pray that they would know your presence this morning and Spirit, for all those who are weary and heavy laden, I pray that as they come close to Christ, they would find rest for their souls in place of their weariness. And Father, for those here this morning in lament, I pray that they would know your kind presence, uh, your mercies that are new every morning as we wait for the resurrection and the life to come. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 So this morning is our final sermon in the Nicene Creed series, and that makes me sad. I I have really enjoyed our time together as a family, uh, not only working through the creed, but discovering the rich biblical truths that are summarized so well in the creed, and then seeing where in the scriptures each of those lines in the creed are anchored. It's really been life-giving to me. The creed has become something of a friend to me. I grew up in a denominational expression that didn't have a lot of space for creeds to be present in our family gatherings. That makes me sad too. I think, I hope, if we've learned anything over the last several weeks, is that the creed can be a really good friend to us if we will allow it to be so. For example, we learned a few weeks ago that the creed was a friend to the early church, right? They, they existed in this arena of thought. And there were a lot of false views about God being taught and propagated on social media and everything. And they needed a heavyweight fighter, if you will, to step into the ring with clarity, not swinging punches at people, but swinging punches at false ideas about who God is and what he has done. And that's what the creed was, right? We learned uh, they actually named the creed in in honor of Apollo Creed. An easy way to remember that, that the creed is not really. It's alternate history. Um, That's how I remember, though. The creed is a heavyweight fighter that steps into the ring and takes takes swings at false ideas of God. That's helpful for me, right? Because we live in a culture that propagates all kinds of crazy ideas about who God is or who he isn't, what he has done or what he hasn't done. But I I don't just need a heavyweight fighter because I live in a culture that has false views and teachings about God. I need a heavyweight fighter in the ring because my own heart daily disbelieves the truth about who God is, kind of comes up with my own formulations of who God is. For example, my Jesus would never. My, my God would never, right? I need the creed. I need this heavyweight fighter uh, punching, knocking out those false ideas that creep up in my own heart and my mind for my good, and we need it as a church. But what I want to show you this morning as we finish our series in the creed is that the creed is our friend, but he is not only a heavyweight fighter. He's not only a heavyweight king, He is a heartfelt comforter. The creed is a friend for different seasons in life. He can be the heavyweight king. She can be the heavyweight king when when we need her to be. But she is a heartfelt comforter as well. When we find ourselves in incredible seasons of discouragement, loss, lament, and mourning, the creed not only speaks to our thinking about God, The Creed speaks to our feeling about God. So if the heavyweight king is Apollo Creed, I have a different character for you to associate with the Creed as a friend this morning, and that person's name is Cardinal Schuster. Cardinal Schuster's story is told in uh, a book entitled Beneath a Scarlet Sky. Uh, Mark Sullivan is the author's name. In that book, it's not actually about Cardinal Schuster. It's about a boy in Milan named Pino Lella. And I love the name Pinolella Lella because I don't know any Italian. But when I say Pinolella, you would think that I'm fluent in Italian. It just rolls right off your tongue. Pinolella. Lella. Pino was 17, and he lived in Milan during the German occupation. And he experienced nothing but loss and devastation. He became a part of the resistance, something of a spy. Um, But just day after day, family members were killed, friends were killed, people were taken out of Milan and sent uh, to, to what they would find out later were concentration camps. The book is incredibly sad. And at his lowest moment, Pino runs to the church at the center of Milan. He knew Cardinal Schuster as a longtime friend. And his life just falls apart right there on the spot. And so 18 year old Pino runs to the highest point in the church building, all the way to the bell tower. He steps out onto the ledge, stories above a rocky street, and he steps with one foot over the ledge, gazing down. It's done. His deepest, darkest moment. This is going to be a spoiler alert, okay? The door to the bell tower opens and Cardinal Schuster steps out onto the ledge with Pino and extends a hand. And where Pino's gaze was down, never to look up again, the Cardinal gently lifts his chin and where Pino's spirit was just crushed, the Cardinal gently speaks words and expresses heartfelt emotion that pointed Pino's eyes to the horizon where the sun would rise again and encouraging him to take hope in a God who is the resurrection and the life. The creed isn't just a heavyweight king. The creed, if we will allow her to be, will also prove to be a heartfelt comforter in seasons where we are Pino, and if not physically, at least emotionally and spiritually, we're ready to jump and be done. They had an exchange near the bell tower, and here it is. Um, Cardinal Schuster says, hey, faith is a strange creature, like a falcon that nests year after year in the same place, but then flies away, sometimes for years, only to return again stronger than ever. Pinolella says, yeah, that's nice, but I don't know that faith will ever return for me and the friend the comforting the comforting encourager just looks pino in the eye as he takes him by the hand and pulls him off the ledge and says it it will in time in time and maybe that's where we wrestle most is the in time peace it will but in time our big idea for the morning is simply this when life is full of lament we look forward and the creed is the friend that steps onto the ledge with us and lifts our gaze off the ground and helps us to look forward. I'm a simple guy, so here's my outline for the day. We look forward when life is full of lament. See what I did there? <laughs> so let's begin. We look forward. <clears throat> The final line of the creed reminds us that as God's kids, that's exactly what we do. We, we look forward. We recited it together a few moments ago, but here's the final line again. We look forward to what? Two things, really, the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. And just in case you're new to creeds and to the church, uh, amen is not a weird church word or mysterious. It's just an old Greek word. Um, it simply means, I agree with that. That's what amen means, okay? I know in the South it can be used for a whole bunch of different things. All it really means is, yeah, I agree with what, what you just said, okay? Amen. It's all done. I agree. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and life to life in the world to come. God's kids have always looked forward. That's, that defines the culture of our family. That defines the culture of God's people. We are a forward-looking people. I can demonstrate this to you briefly just by reminding us that the timeline or the narrative of all of scripture can be broken down into four phases if you will or four chapters if you want to think of it that way, okay? We have creation, we have the fall, the rebellion, we have redemption and we have restoration. All of scripture fits neatly into those four categories or that timeline if you will. And all the way back in the creation, we were a forward-looking people. God was with us. He said, "I'll be your God and you will be my people." You're going to be Fruitful and multiply, and I'm going to give you dominion over wherever it is that you live. Now that word Dominion is a beautiful word. We have to kind of take it back from those that would say it has negative connotations. You don't. Dominion is not exercised in a self-serving way. Once it is, it's no longer dominion. Dominion is a self-giving exercise that exists for the good and the flourishing of others. So God says, you're going to exist in this place, for all time, and you're going to exercise dominion. You're going to live a God-centered life and you'll be satisfied because you're God-centered. The minute you shift from being God-centered and you try to be self-centered, listen, you will never find satisfaction, period. You were created to find satisfaction in God, God God-centered life. So when you are, you're free to exercise dominion. When you're not God-centered, you're not free to exercise dominion. What do you express? Domination. That's your existence at the expense of others for your good. It's the exact opposite of your created purpose, right? That is, that is 90% of what ails us societally and culturally today, right? Dominion. Uh, so we were forward-looking. You will exist in this place for the good and the flourishing of others. And we have fall, we have redemption, and we have restoration. But even in the fall, when everything fell apart because of our rebellion, God still leads us to be forward-looking. This is from Genesis 3.15, which many people consider to be what's called the first gospel, right? Pre-John 3.16, Genesis 3.15. And God is announcing the result of this new reality because of rebellion and our shift from being God-centered to uh, self-centered. And now he's speaking to the serpent. He said, I'm gonna put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now notice what he says. Uh, He the offspring of eve will bruise your head that's a fatal blow that's a that's he's announcing the win before the battle even really unfolds right it's it's here's the win uh, a descendant of eve will deliver a knockout blow but in the process you will bring great pain you're going to bruise his heel and so even all the way back When everything fell apart, God visits his people in the garden and in this announcement reminds them that we are forward looking and though it seems hopeless in the moment, there is an incredible hope for the future because of what God will do redemptively through a descendant of Eve. And it's through that descendant of Eve, we know his name is Jesus, we're introduced to him. We learn of him all through the Old Testament of what he will do and who he will be. We see him in the Gospels. And here's a very clear picture from John 11, verse 23 to 27. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha's brother Lazarus had just died. Jesus visits, he said, Lazarus is not dead forever, he will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now look at that I am statement. And what are the two statements in the final line of the creed? We believe in what? Or we look forward to what? The resurrection and what? Wow, fascinating. It's all wrapped up in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He said. And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. So the creed would be your friend this morning simply just by asking you that question. Do you believe this about Jesus? Do you believe that he is not only the resurrection and the life, but that he is the, he is your personal resurrection and life? Uh, so if you're new to Christianity, we as Christians, uh, historically rooted in the teachings of Jesus, have always believed in and confessed a bodily resurrection from the dead, that though we die and we are buried, uh, Jesus, who is the resurrection, who is the life, will raise us again for a life that is to come. Uh, one of my young sons, uh, he's not, on the way to school this week, I don't know what we were talking about, um, we were passing all of the tombs by our house. I think he was asking me about what the full, fullness of the contents inside of those tombs. And, and something along the lines like, how do you get so many bodies in the smaller, the, the, the tombs of the poor people that are so small, like how do you get so many family bodies in there? So I was trying to expl- explain cremation and the bones, which is probably a wrong conversation to have on the way to school with a six year old. Uh, but when we're unsupervised, we have all kinds of crazy conversations. <laughs> And, uh, and he's like, dude, I don't want to die uh, in Japan. And he's like, I, I, can, can, we, can we go back so I can die in America? <laughs> and so we were talking all of that, which led to this. Like we were talking about, well, look, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how or where you die. We confess Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so if you go to the grave with faith in Jesus as your resurrecting king, no matter how you die and no matter how you're buried, you're going to be resurrected to, to new life. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the God who is coming into the world. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Uh, So that's redemption, right? Where there is an exclamation point, if you will, in the cross that's slammed into the earth where God, the father is reminding his kids, his people, we are a forward looking people. We're a forward looking family. And look, here's a reminder, here's the clearest demonstration of my love for you, and if I'm willing to do this, believe the promises that are to come. And so the cross stands as this exclamation point that would lift our chin when we're tempted to disbelieve the resurrection and the life to come. We can look at the cross And the cross lifts our chin to keep looking further, believing in the promises of God. And not the cross alone. Jesus goes to the grave and his resurrection stands as an exclamation point in the center of history, in middle earth, if you will, for you Lord of the Rings people in the room. I got to do one of those per sermon. So it looks like I read books, right? Middle earth. When it's darkest, the cross and the resurrection stand as a reminder that we are a forward-looking people to the resurrection to come, and the life in the world to come. Now what will that life be like? What will it look like in the world to come? Here's just a very brief explanation from Revelation. It goes like this, and it's beautiful. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What is that? That is the undoing of death. That is the undoing of rebellion. That is the restoration of what was in Eden before our rebellion. God with us, us with God. He is He's our God. We are his people. God-centered, free-to-live lives of dominion and not domination beautiful. He will, and here's where it gets increasingly more beautiful, particularly for those of us who have known lament. He will personally wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Life in the world to come is the undoing of the death that was never meant to be. Death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In other words, you don't pay for this. Jesus did the work for you. So as followers of Jesus, this is our confession of hope. We are forward-looking, and what are we looking forward to? We are looking forward to the resurrection of the dead and life in the world, that world right there that is to come, where Jesus is our forever King who reigns in perfect justice and kindness, all injustice, all domination, all sorrow, all pain, gone, all the tears dried, all of our lamenting and mourning resurrected in the grave. Now, what does that look like in life? I mean, that sounds beautiful, but what does that look like right now? If we're a forward-looking people, maybe you heard it said if you grew up in religious circles, I heard it said all the time, man, you're so heavenly-minded that you are no earthly good. What do you think about that? Is that a thing? Is that possible? I believed it when I was younger. I believed it about like, older religious people in my church. I was thinking very poorly of them and not giving them the benefit of the doubt, but I believed that. Oh, they're so heavenly minded. They think about God so much. They're no good down here. Just take them home. (laughs) We laugh, but that's what you're thinking. And that's what I get paid to do as a pastor, to say out loud in church what you never really would. I don't think that's true. I don't think you can be so heavenly minded that you're so earthly good. Like to be heavenly minded would be that you are so deeply committed to this ethic of looking forward to the resurrection of the dead and life in the world to come, that it would so radically shape the way that you live now in a confident, fearless, others-giving, dominion-exercising. I think the more heavenly-minded you are, the more inclined you are to exercise dominion for the good of others. The less heavenly-minded you are, the more inclined you are to exercise domination for your good at the expense of others, right? So here's what it looks like. 2 Corinthians 1, beautiful, short example Uh, This is Paul writing to one of his churches. He says, hey, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Don't have time to go into all that. Their their world was rocked in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. All right, so we need to blow another Christian subculture meme up. God would never give me more. Finish the sentence. Ah, there, right there. He, was, he wanted to die. He couldn't handle it. That's Paul. Paul was a pretty rugged dude. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You know what, the, guys? You know what? In like Bible words, you know what I'm saying? He thought about dying. Were those suicidal thoughts? I mean, that's what he just said. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Look, there's that shift from domination to dominion, restoration back to Eden, not relying on myself, relying on the God who created me. He delivered, look at now, I love this kind of sequence. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us And so on him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us, what, again. So we have, we're a forward-looking people, but the roots of our forward-lookingness, if you will, are anchored in the soil of the past where God has rescued us. Don't you see that pattern all through scripture? Like all of the holidays that God's people in the Old Testament were meant to celebrate, that he gave them, were what? To look back on something God had done. Why? So that they would have hope for the future of what he would do again. There's the pattern. He has delivered us. He will deliver us. And on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. If that's how you live, if you're that heavenly minded, to use a denigrating term, your life will be free to live with an incredible self-giving confidence a fearlessness. You're not worried about your life, your death, your confidence in Jesus who raises from the dead. And you will f- have the freedom to live your created purpose for the good of others. And your life can be the hardest life there is but you'll have this deep abiding joy that can't be taken away from you because you are living God-centered life for the good of others under a sentence of death. But your faith is firmly anchored in Jesus who is the resurrection and the life, right? So that is the summary of that final line. We, are a fo- we look forward, we're a forward-looking people to the resurrection of the dead and life in the world to come, Amen. But now in the time that we have left, I want to come at it from one more angle. So this is halftime, okay? Take a sip, take a break. Uh, I need a sip. It's halftime. Like tomorrow, it's going to be halftime while the eagles are destroying uh, the chiefs. I'm going to say that's a prophetic word. Which, when people say that, you do know what happens to uh, people who claim to be a prophet, and then what they say doesn't come true, right? You stone them, baby. So... You can't do that, but I am leaving in four months, so. All right. What about when life is is full of lament? Things change when we feel a certain way, right? I mean, we confess those things. It's easy to say. It's all written down. It's in the Bible. It's in a creed. But our hearts are really tricky places, especially when they're in pain, right? So what about when life is full of lament? Lament. I think about uh, Cardinal Schuster's line again on the spire. And he said, uh, in summary, telling Pino, he's like, hey, faith, it's like a falcon. It, it flies away, flies away in those moments of pain, right? And so he was trying to encourage him that even though your faith has departed, your hope in God is gone under the weight of the lament that you're carrying right now. Uh, it'll, it'll come back. And Pino says in response, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think it's going to return for me. And while that quote is still on the screen, I, just, I, want to, I imagine in a room this size, many of you in this room, uh, Pino could speak on your behalf. If not right now, you have certainly felt that way in the past. But as your pastor and as a friend and many, many conversations with so many of you, look, I, I know that many of you are in the room feeling that kind of way, like right, right now, you're maybe not on a literal ledge but your soul is on a ledge if you will with pino so i just wonder if you can identify with exactly what he's expressing in your lament yeah, i don't i don't know if it ever it ever will As I was preparing for the sermon this week, as those words were bouncing around in my head and this idea of having a forward-looking hope in resurrection from dead and life in the world to come, with all the realities of life in a broken world, of course, we know just about a week ago now that incredible earthquakes took place in Turkey and Syria and you follow the news and the death toll number just climbs Daily, and like in your soul, you're like, Man, they're still only reporting a fraction of persons who are dead because they just haven't been able to and they won't be able to uncover so many people for so long, and so the number climbs. And there was one particular image that really stuck in my soul this week. Uh, before I, I edited this, just so you know, some of you have probably already seen this, but I edited it down just because it's so, um, it's such a powerful shot. He, he's holding the hand of his deceased teenage daughter who's lying in a bed crushed under the weight of a collapsed building. Um, I edited it so that you didn't need to see, if you don't want to, his hand and her hand uh, this morning. But I just want to draw your attention to his face. And if ever there's a face that captures the feeling of Pino's words, in my opinion, it's his face. So what do you say to a man in his position who's holding the hand of his, his dead daughter? And as the reporting goes, I mean, it's really hard to report stories like this uh, under the circumstances, but as I've read... The the sense is, and this may not be true, but the sense is that they were already a displaced family living somewhere they wouldn't ordinarily, ordinarily live because of the regional conflict. So they're essentially already, he is already a wartime refugee trying to bring his family to a safe place, and this happens. So how are you feeling about God in that moment? And I think sometimes we're really uncomfortable with themes or ideas from scripture that just encourage people to be hopeful. Uh, I think sometimes, maybe because we haven't done a good job sitting with them, or maybe we haven't, we, for whatever reason, I think sometimes there's a self-consciousness or embarrassment that like the hopeful pieces of scripture are little more than like Bob Marley in church clothes. Like don't worry, be happy, cause every little thing it's going to be all right. But no, it's not. No, it's not. Our world is so horribly broken, the cumulative effect of all the little things not being all right never adds up to all the little things being all right. There's an older song, I don't even know the it's just the whole I grew up like my grandparents kind of singing this one. "You can bet your bottom dollar. What's going to happen? Like the sun comes up tomorrow. Is that even, is that a song? What? Who's Annie? (laughs) Whatever. His sun's not coming up tomorrow, guys. What do you tell him? The sun doesn't rise tomorrow for him. Maybe it does, but he's numb to it now. Right? Christians don't traffic in cheap encouragement. We're not Bob Marley in church clothes for all his musical genius. Right? That's not who we are. Right? His lament has taken him to a grave, death. So what do we do? Are we therapists? Like we just offer, hey, you just need to remember memories. Revisit memories from the past. Those will be your consolation and healing. Really? For those of us who have experienced lament, is that enough? for the rest of your life to carry memories of what were. Can there be some healing found there? Sure. Ultimate healing, hope? No. Maybe the worst advice uh, for those of you who have been through seasons of miscarriage or loss, uh, the loss of a child, pre-birth, just just after birth. I've heard it said so many times, and as Linnea and I navigated years, five, six years of miscarriage and potential infertility, you know after a miscarriage would happen a well meaning person again back to the well they're just so heavenly minded they're no earthly good like that's how i was judging right would say god will give you another one to replace the loss so is that what the christian hope is revisiting memories replacing in loss you can't replace sacred right you can't replace a human being there is a sacred a person that was in a relationship that was, that though there may be other relationships, there's no replacement. So guys, when our lament goes to the grave, we need a love that goes deeper still. And that's what Jesus did when he went to the cross and went to the grave, the tomb, and went to the depths of the earth. And when he exploded the tomb in resurrection, I don't need to revisit memories I don't need to replace what was lost. He doesn't need to revisit or replace. He needs resurrection. He needs a love that has gone to the grave where his lament is anchored so that his hope can rest in exactly what the creed says. Resurrection from the dead and life in the world to come. That's the message of hope that we traffic in. Along those lines of being embarrassed, sometimes we feel like words of hope or confidence in Scripture are spoken by people who have not experienced pain. It's the reason I had Heather... I didn't have Heather stand. It's the reason I gave her the passage that I did. Heather stood, Heather read. I gave her an abbreviated passage from Lamentations. I gave her only the the good words because I want you to feel some of that tension. You're like, see... That person who said whatever they did in Lamentations about hoping in God has never known pain like him. Well, let's look. Lamentations 3.1. How does it begin? I am the man who has seen affliction. It's that guy. He wrote these words. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Now, I just, very, just a very brief aside, okay? Just very brief, and we'll get right back into the text. The reasons for which people suffer in this world are many and mysterious. It's very hard to discern why certain sufferings happen. We need to be careful there. He makes a very definitive statement because he knew Uh, All of Lamentations was written in a response to the fall of Jerusalem. They knew that Jerusalem had fallen because they had rebelled from God and they knew that they were under God's judgment. He knew this. That's why he said it. We have to be very careful when we're assessing the sufferings of other people not to draw that conclusion. That's not for us. That is not our... He's drawing it for himself. That's not our conclusion to draw in the lives of other people. You as a son or daughter of God, even have to be careful in your own life to remember suffering in light of the cross. What does Romans 8, 1 say? There is therefore now what? No condemnation. So that word wrath that he used, all of that was poured out by God the Father on Jesus the Son at the cross for all who would be uh, believed by faith and be adopted. So that means from this, from that day forward, you would never know uh, the judgment of God for your rebellion. In other words, suffering for your rebellion. Now, we gotta nuance that a little bit because while you may never know the condemnation of God for your rebellion while you're in Christ, you can certainly know the consequences of your rebellion, I had a professor, uh, he, was a, he was our Hebrew guy, and he always liked to say, he's like, John, 90% of life is Proverbs. 90% of life is Proverbs. It's a maxim. It's a, a, you do this, this is going to happen. You submit to God, you pursue the fear of, of, of God, you're going to know life and happiness and joy. Uh, you, you, you rebel, you make, you make sinful choice. you sin like a rebel, you're gonna suffer like a rebel, right, that's Proverbs. He's like, John, 90% of life is Proverbs. But he's like, look, 10% of life is Ecclesiastes. What does Ecclesiastes say? In short, it doesn't make sense. That's what Ecclesiastes says. Here's just one brief example, then we'll get back to Lamentations. Um, we took halftime, just full disclosure, we're gonna go into overtime just a little bit, but you're good, right, you hydrated? All right, here's Ecclesiastes. This is what he says about suffering. Hey, there's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. This is a vanity. It doesn't make sense. People suffer and there is mystery behind suffering. They're good. They've obeyed God. They've li- Look, the guy in, we don't know anything really about the guy in Turkey, but what we, we think we know about him Good guy, caring for his family, working, rescuing them from a war-torn area, only to see his daughter die in an earthquake like that. Why? That doesn't make sense. So Lamentations helps us express what we feel, no matter the type of suffering or the season of suffering. One more thing about Lamentations. There are five poems in this book we can't hear the meter in English, but in Hebrew, it was written in a meter for funerals. So it, it has a mournful sound. If I, if I had paid attention to my Hebrew guy who talked about Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, I could read it out loud for you like that, and you would hear the sorrow. You know what else they did with the limitations? I think we should do this. Every year, in the fifth month, on the ninth day of that month, They'd open the church house doors, the temple. Everybody would come in and sit down. And they would have readers, just like Heather did for us, come down front. Heather would come down front because we all really enjoy Heather's reading voice. And Heather would read Lamentation for us from start to finish. And once a year, we would, as a family, express all the lament for all the pain that we carry. And once a year, we would remember that when we rebel from God, things go really badly. And we would rehearse that even though we are rebels, God is kind and brings us back home, right? So what would that be, May 9th? We could do that. All right, here we go, we gotta read this. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones he has made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. This is lost on us in Hebrew. We would say it as he took a kill shot. God shot to kill me. I've become the laughingstock of all people the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. In other words, he's made me drink a poison cup. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. Uh, We would say, I wanna die. I'm done, I'm done living. If this is life and that's God, I'm done. So is my hope from the Lord, it's dead. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, the bitterness. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So these are the words that could be spoken by the father as he sits there in the rubble holding his daughter's hand. These are the words that would have been spoken by someone like Pino as he's on the ledge getting ready to jump. He had just seen his His girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, shot-to-death, execution style. These are words that you would have spoken in your pain and loss. These are words that you need to speak in your pain and loss. After miscarriage, after divorce, after death of a parent, a sibling. And this is where you need the creed to be your Cardinal Schuster, to lift your chin gently where all you see is what is described here so that your eyes can see the hope of the sun rising on the horizon, Jesus, the resurrection from the dead and the life to come. I'm curious what words stood out to you in that reading. I just, I listed briefly what stood out to me. Uh, Here are just a few. Some of you feel this way, darkness without any light, bitterness and tribulation, dwelling in darkness like dead people you can't escape from the sorrow that you feel my soul is bereft of peace forgotten what happiness is sorry you can go back I skipped a few maybe your chains feel incredibly heavy maybe you feel like your prayers are shut out like God doesn't even hear you right now he's blocking my way out he's filled me with bitterness My teeth grind on, he doesn't give me anything good to eat for my soul. No peace, I've forgotten what happiness is. My endurance has perished, and so is my hope from the Lord. And all I can remember is this, and so I'm I'm bowed down in my soul. Guys, I think we should feel a whole lot of freedom to know that it's actually God the Father who is giving us this vocabulary to say these things from our soul to him as our Father. So you have that freedom. And in this freedom, we need a friend like Cardinal Schuster, like the, like the Creed, verse 21. This is what our friend does. This I call to mind, right? I feel this way. So I need a friend to hold my hand, to, to allow me to feel these feelings and say these words but walk me off the ledge. So help me call this to mind so that I have hope restored because I can't find hope in my own soul, because you won't. It's not there. You can't find it by looking in. You look at verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So even if the sun doesn't rise, the Father's mercies rise with every morning. And so what that's saying is since we're a forward-looking people waiting for something that hasn't happened yet, God's promise is not that the resurrection happens tomorrow. His promise is not that the sun rises tomorrow. His promise is that in the blackness of a sun-deficient day that he will be present and that his mercies, his kindness, will be enough to sustain us for another day and another day until the resurrection of dead and life in the world to come. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 24 is powerful. It says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope on him. That sounds like a really religious Sunday school answer. No. Portion means he's all I have left. That's it. God has taken everything else away from me. Another baby, another set of orders, another PCS, another family member, another day of feeling well in my mental health, another one. So he's all I have left. And so I'm just going to hope in him because I have nothing else to hope in right now. That's not a Sunday school answer, guys. That is a raw expression of pain and acknowledgement that it seems like God has taken everything from me. Guess he's all I got left. I'm going to have to hope in him. And in that tension, verses 25 and 26, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Or in the words of the creed, it is good that one should wait quietly for the resurrection of the dead in Jesus and for life in the world to come when all of my pain will be resurrected in the resurrection of Jesus and life restored. And so fam, our invitation this morning is simply this. In the words of Schuster and Pinolella again, "Faith like a falcon flies away, only to return again. I don't know if it will ever return for me. You say, you, we say these words. And the good news of the gospel, Jesus would look us in the eye and say, "It will. in time." And it's those two words in time where the writer of lamentation says, "While that time is unfolding, the best thing for us is to draw near to God to express all of this pain and to wait quietly for him and for the resurrection of the dead and life in the world to come. And as we wait, he will show himself to be good and kind and merciful and restorative. So the team is going to come and lead us in response now. And I just want to acknowledge that very many of you may feel, deeply feel these words. And since the whole idea of lamentations is waiting quietly for the Lord... If you're in pain or if you're on the ledge, you don't need to stand and sing. You can stand if you don't want to just be sitting. You don't need to sing. Let others sing for you, right? While your soul cannot find peace, let others in the room be a Cardinal Schuster, be a creed for you, and let them speak the words of life and hope over you. You just wait quietly for the kindness of God in the rubble of your life believing that his mercies will be enough even when the sun doesn't rise and believing that Jesus is coming. He is the resurrection and the life. There is a resurrection of the dead and there is life in the world to come. Let's respond.